0: This summer, you can help Black Rifle Coffee and the Boot Campaign raise $1 million for veterans. All you need to do is grab a can of ready-to-drink coffee from local grocery or convenience stores. From May 31st through August 31st, every can of ready-to-drink coffee you buy will contribute to making this massive donation possible. As one of the top veteran-focused nonprofits in the country, the Boot Campaign is on a mission to provide life-changing aid and benefits to veterans suffering from invisible wounds like post-traumatic stress. Each can you drink gets us closer to hitting a million dollars for vets. So grab a can of Black Rifle ready to drink coffee from the BRCC website or your local grocery or convenience store. Let's raise a can together and keep fueling Americans for a good cause. Hey, welcome back to the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Got a special guest, Hazard Lee. That's a cool name. Where does Hazard coming from? It's call sign. Is it?
1: Yeah. So, you know, you can't, as a fighter pilot, tell the public yeah. where that came from, but yeah. over a glass of scotch, happy to tell you.
0: That's awesome. I imagine it has something to do with hazards. Like...
1: Well, it's an it's a acronym. So H-A-S-A-R-D. So, oh. you know, as fighter pilots, you don't get to choose your call sign. So usually it's something <laughs> stupid you did or time you almost died or, you know, making fun of your last name. So it's a good story. Happy to tell you over a glass of scotch. Yeah. We'll acronyms. talk
0: about that post. In the underground, we'll talk about that. Um, the art of clear thinking. And I'm, I'm really interested in the subject matter. We talk about it in decision-making and situational awareness and, and maintaining a focus on the task, but understanding cognitively, you're going to have to make some sound decisions in, in these stressful c- scenarios. And we talk about it in self-defense mainly, but or catastrophe and disaster. But I was fascinated by this because it's a protocol in the book that you've introduced kind of as a, I don't know, mantra and a a protocol you've established in your life as a a pilot. Is that something you were taught in the schoolhouse or these are the processes that you developed along the way?
1: It's a combination of both. So ultimately as fighter pilots, what we're doing is we're making thousands of decisions each flight often with incomplete information and lives on the line. So the way I broke it down in the book is assess, choose, and execute. So if you can't assess the problem in front of you, you're not going to be able to make a consistently make a good decision out of that. Next is choosing the correct course of action. I talk in the book about uh, effects-based planning. That's something that the Air Force has been doing for a long time since really the Gulf War, where you're disconnecting what you're fighting versus the ultimate effect that you want to achieve. So the Gulf War, you saw we went after power grids, we went after their leadership. It wasn't this force and force attrition that you've seen in the past where aircraft go up, try to shoot down other aircraft, tanks go out for other tanks. So it was really kind of a revolutionary way of thinking that we've you know, utilized ever since with the kind of shock and awe campaigns that you've seen.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested because uh, you're the first fast mover pilot that I've talked to. I've talked to plenty of A-10 and rotary wing pilots, but a, a fast mover, F 16, F 35, it's a different experience than a lot of different aircrafts and platforms because you're moving fast and you have to make rapid decisions on the fly. I remember doing a vehicle interdiction with an F 16 with Task Force um, in Afghanistan, and they were moving so fast at the speed of, in which the vehicle was traveling. If they dropped and they missed, it was like a three minute loiter. Mm-hmm. Like they had it, it was like, all right, we'll see you in three minutes. It was like, oh my God, we might not have this car here in that position in three minutes, but they were usually spot on at at dropping the ammunition on the vehicle. That's a very different experience. How did you get into an F-16 to begin with? Because that was the first platform that you were in, right?
1: Right, so yeah, I mean, the F-16, it's completely really disconnected from the troops on the ground. Like, it's a different experience. You're flying at 15,000 feet, generally 0.8, 0.9 Mach, so 500, 600 miles an hour. So, I mean, I think we all have experience taken off from our home city it's tough to recognize landmarks now imagine being in afghanistan trying to bomb a you know a certain point everything looks the same so it's challenging but for me i start off in the f-16 transition to the f-35 uh you know first time flying the f-16 it's incredible you you're just sitting on top of thirty thousand pounds of thrust as soon as you go to afterburner so we have two types of engines one similar to an airliner the other afterburner, so you're just injecting fuel into the exhaust, igniting it. It's like a 30 foot flame coming out of the back. So is that for
0: quick takeoffs and
1: yeah, or if you're if you have a lot of ordnance. So when we were flying combat missions, you would do a combat departure every time, full afterburner, try to accelerate, you know, 20 feet off the ground to 500 knots, uh, about 600 miles an hour, and then climb into the vertical. So that gets you away from those man pads, man portable air defense uh, systems, as well as you know AKs stuff like that.
0: How was your how was your GWAT run? I mean, you were a global war on terror, which is crazy to say that because now the global war on ter- terrorism, like the GWAT, as we understand it, is over with. This Afghan Iraq campaign that we both served in, it's kind of behind us. In reflection, looking back at that experience, that is a very rare experience even today. I mean, a lot of guys who serve in uniform today have never been in combat. They have they weren't in the height of the war reflecting back on that experience, how was it for you and and what what were some highlights?
1: Yeah, for me, definitely the highlight was deploying to Afghanistan in 2016. So we were actually kind of bummed about that because the war was winding down. We were the only squadron being deployed out there. 12 jets, 24-hour ops, so two of us would be airborne any given time. That was like a peak
0: though, right? (laughs) That was like insane, 2016. Well, 2016,
1: the first couple months were pretty boring. Then Secretary of Defense Mattis took over and he... ISIS was was starting to take hold, so he said he wanted all ISIS annihilated. Wow! The Air Force doesn't even know what that means. That's not even like yeah. you know doctrinal comms. Yeah. So the Air Force spent two weeks figuring out what that meant, and it <laughs> meant that we were going to drop a, a ton of bombs. So, yeah. I mean, we were the only squadron in the country, so we were flying all over the country because our strength's really speed. So we would do operations in the Helmand province. Then do operations along the Iran border. Then uh, something, a tick with troops in contact would kick off along the Nangarhar border. So we were all over the place. In fact, we had to carry multiple PMDs, like mission data cards, to go to different areas of the country. So we were extremely busy starting in January 2017. And I mean, you guys, like special forces on the ground, Army Rangers, combat controllers, they were doing some high risk clearing ops along that Nangarhar border. So we were providing uh, close air support for them.
0: That's awesome, man. I The Air Force is the only service that has F-16s, right? Is that true?
1: Actually, the Navy does. A few of them, their F-16 ends just for training.
0: Okay, in my book, Prepared, Jocko hit me up. He's like, hey, man, you put Navy F-16s. And it was in Solder City. I was in a big gunfight in 2006 where I was pinned on a rooftop. And an the F-16 saved my life. I mean, it saved me and my team's life. But it was the Navy was controlling it. And I wasn't sure if it was an Air Force or a Navy bird at that time mm. period, but it could have Air been Force, either. Air Force. Oh, it was Air Force, 100%. okay. Yeah,
1: because Navy just uses, I mean, they probably have like 10, 20 just for training.
0: Okay, yeah, he, he was, so I, when I wrote that, I wrote Navy F-16, but the Navy was controlling it. It wasn't a Navy F-16, mm-hmm. it was the Navy's F-16. And I, re- I remember he was high above the entire battle space, but because he had the technology integrated in his aircraft, he was able to see things obviously that we couldn't see from our vantage points. I mean, being on a three-story rooftop surrounded by building, buildings and bad guys, it's hard to get oriented to the battlefield. He had a big-picture view of what was going on, and at one point, to lull the the campaign, the engagement that we were in, he broke out of loiter and he did a show of force. Mm-hmm. I think it's called and pop flares over us. But I thought he was doing a gun run. I thought he was going to kill us. Uh, I I had. I had heard through my radio, they identified guys on a rooftop, and I thought he was talking about us because we were guys on a rooftop with guns and gunfights. And he had a, coordinated with a combat controller that were communicating with each other and basically scraped the entire the city, which was really brave of him. I mean, that, that time, service to air missiles was a huge threat, and it saved our lives. And I was impressed that a fast mover was capable of coming out of the heavens and breaking through the cloud coverage and getting that low, it nearly, I mean, it was one of the scariest moments in my military career. But the fact that he broke out in close proximity, I heard was rare. Is that a rare thing for you guys to do that? I mean, how how is it, give some context for for listeners. It's hard for people to fathom what it's like in an F-16 that's moving so fast that high mm-hmm. and managing all the components and systems, trusting the integration of this technology, that you're going to drop a bomb or a munition in the right place. How does that feel? What is it? What is that like?
1: It's extremely tough, especially in the F-16. So the F-16 is kind of this rat's nest of technology. It was designed in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s tech all integrated together. So you there's no fusion in it like the F-35. Your brain is the fusion. So. In the F-16, unfortunately, we have like six times the fit controlled flight into terrain that other aircraft have just because the pilot's so task-saturated trying to build the situational awareness. So oh, wow. it's extremely tough in the Viper. Part of it is because of G-lock, so G-induced loss of consciousness. You're essentially flying this roller coaster going 600 miles an hour. <laughs> and you can turn so tight that you can pass out. And unfortunately, we, we lose about one pilot a year to a G-lock. So over really? the last 30 years, you turn so tight the blood drains from your brain. Because of the you speed. pass out. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So we, so, so I mean, I have a, a YouTube channel now. So we brought Tito Ortiz, UFC legend, put him in a centrifuge, because he wanted to see what fighter yeah. pilots feel. And we he's spun like, up to nine <laughs> Gs and he passed out. And I mean, he's like in peak, you know, shape. So yeah. like, you know, the, the forces, it's 2000 pounds of force on your body. Each arm weighs 250 pounds. So these aircraft are just, incredible. And uh, flying low to the ground, it's difficult. You're almost carving through the sky, you're not just turning like a car. So it's yeah. it's really difficult to be able to match what you're seeing on the ground. to what what's happening in the air, especially our training, what we're typically training, especially in the f 16 as a block 50 wild weasel going out and doing the seed mission suppression of enemy air defense. So it's so that's kind of our bread and butter. transitioning to to close air support is pretty challenging.
0: What, what was the highlight if you had to like identify any specific moment in combat where you were like, I made it. Like that that's what this training and that's what this thing was for. Man, I can't believe that happened. Did you have any of those moments?
1: Yeah, probably three actually. One was strafing, so i strafed three oh, wow. times in combat. I had dropped all my ordnance and you know, that's that's all we had, two F-16s airborne at any given time. So we had a tanker following us around the country. So we'd go from tick to tick to tick. And so I ran out of bombs and ended up strafing three times and was able to. That's crazy. You know, at the end of the day, we're there to support you guys on the ground. So to hear the combat controllers, I mean, they're extremely professional. They're amazing, calling an airstrike after airstrike. To be able to, you know, they're in a tough spot for us to go in and hear the relief in their voice. That's that's what we live for. So it was fantastic to be able to uh, to strafe and neutralize the threat and uh, allow them to to keep moving back to their home base.
0: Yeah, imagine strafing on bad guys, taking your aircraft that's used to being very high and bring it below the deck, especially moving that fast, is the most dangerous thing that you could potentially do.
1: Yeah, there's no armor in the Mm F-16. So, I mean, you guys are at way more risk in these conflicts. So, I mean, it's the least we can do to to go down and and strafe. It's not the most effective weapon, but, uh, you know, as a last resort it's great so yeah being able to strafe isn't bad there's no armor in the f16 so golden bb you know rule applies so just the ak can take us down wow
0: so in and out fast
1: speed is our strength so you're 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 diving down going about 450 knots so about 600 miles an hour 550 miles an hour you're getting low so we have two types of strafe high angle strafe low angle strafe low angle strafe you're getting down to 100 feet so oh my god 100 feet at 600 you know, miles an Airline hour. speeds. So, I mean, <laughs> oh the, the biggest threat then is running And manually, into the ground. like you're like manually flying. Full full manual. Full manual. You're shooting 20 millimeter rounds. So, each of these rounds are like high, exen- high explosive incendiary rounds. So, little yeah. grenades. We uh, we can shoot 6,000 a minute. Wow. We, we only carry 510. So, that's five seconds of gun. So, you're, you're burning everything. You have five seconds of guns. Five gun? seconds, yeah. <laughs> so, you're just, you're just. You burp it for a second. Destroying like, oh. yeah, oh. that area. F wow. yeah, thirty five is less, only hundred eighty one rounds. I'm have five mic mic, so slightly bigger, but wow, yeah, strafing is is awesome. It's kind of the, yeah. the pinnacle of you know what you train for as a fighter pilot, even though it's not the most effective thing. It's it's the most visceral thing. Getting low like yeah. that, getting your hands dirty.
0: Well, imagine even the force protection mitigation of the enemy psychology of seeing an F sixteen fly that low that fast, the noise, everything. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that distinctly as a, a ingrained in my memory of even that F-16 strafing Solder City, and how it, it almost silenced the entire battlefield because I think all the ba- bad guys' pucker factor went up through the roof, and they did not want to be exposed to a fast mover that was going. Yeah, when you're carrying an yeah. AK,
1: that's you don't want to you don't want any part of that. Yeah, crazy. Uh, but yeah, that goes to your, your show of force. So we'll just drop down low, a couple hundred feet, pop out flares, do a uh, you know subsonic although I've had friends do supersonic runs that Whoa. low and and yeah it scares everybody down that's there. that's
0: insane man so you you go from f-16 and then there's this transition into an f-35 for people who don't like I don't even understand it when did the f-35 come on board and what was the main purpose like the task and purpose of an f-35 versus the existing inventory
1: yeah so the f-35 is the uh, the latest fit gen fighter so the f-22 f-35 are the two newest fighters f-35 is multi-service so the air force the marines and the navy all have variants oh wow and it's multi-service so there's over a dozen countries who are also flying the f-35 so it's this huge program Uh, at the time i transitioned in 2017 so right after that deployment oh wow my friends kind of thought i was crazy because f-16 was fully developed it was a great airframe and Kind of the word on the street was the F-35 was an F-117 with amrams F-117 is that old stealth fighter, can't really maneuver, doesn't really have air-to-air game. So it was just at the time the the F-35 wasn't fully developed. And Mm. so it was kind of more of a in the test phase. But starting in 2018, we really got the first IOC, initial operation capability software load. And these jets, they're like your phone. So overnight with a software update, you can get... 25% 25% better, you can get the, uh, it can pull more Gs and unlocks a gun. So it's pretty crazy what software alone can do to these jets and and they're incredible. Like uh, the main strengths, they are stealth. So that's the ticket to the ball game now. Yeah, if you are huge. not stealth, you're gonna get shot down uh, in, a, in a medium or high-end conflict. Yeah. Uh, it has fantastic sensors. So merging stealth with amazing sensors, that's really tough to do because everything has to be clean on the exterior of the jet. So everything needs to be embedded in the skin. Uh, sensor fusion, so we talked about the F-16, mm-hmm. all the pilots you know, dying from just task overload. So the F-35's incredible. It fuses all the information together to be a red dot if it's a bad guy, green dot if it's a good guy. Mm-hmm. I've pre- Pretty much two giant iPads in front of me, touch screen, mm-hmm. uh, everything is pumped into my helmet. So we don't have a heads up display. So as I'm looking around, I see it's true augmented reality. It's, Symbols over all the good guys, everything I need to know about them. Symbols over around, around all the bad guys, everything I need to know about them. Wow. Everything I need to employ.
0: Uh, everywhere you look, you're getting that integration. It follows that
1: around everywhere, 360. Uh, we have six midwave IR cameras around the jet so it can see in pitch black and it stitches that into a virtual world that it can pump into your helmet. So at night, you can see through your body. What? So it's it's Did you uh, see through the airframe? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's it's just incredible for situational awareness. Flight controls are incredible on it as well. So that most people have seen Top Gun, that first Top Gun where he's in a flat spin out to sea. We do that on purpose all the time. So oh, wow. you're doing that on purpose uh to be able to to move your jet around and you can control it while you're in that spin. So your lift vector is purely in the vertical while you're doing that. So wow. it's just our advanced flight controls. Uh, and then we network that with everybody else, else around us. So 80% of the fighters right now are those F-16s, F-15s, those legacy fortune fighters. So we're able to to make them a lot better because of our situational awareness. So if it's a bad threat, we'll go in and kill it. If not, we'll hold back and use their weapons on those threats.
0: So integration, there's a cooperative relationship between For sure. the advancement and then the... For sure,
1: because we're going to have legacy. those F-16s till late 2040s. Wow. So, so we and it's eighty percent of the fighter force right now. So you need to find a way to work together because that's the biggest misconception about air combat that it's this one v one cage match. You send up, uh, you know, we send up Tom Cruise, you know, with the, you know, the latest fighter. They send up their best pilot. It's not like that. It's a hundred aircraft all going out and it's multi domain. So you have people in, you know, in space, cyber, on the ground, all working together against this enemy threat because that's really the bread and butter of the F-35 is uh, seed, suppression of enemy air defense, taking out the enemy's IADS, integrated air defense, this beast, this monster going into a country. They have built this up for 20 years. So we need to go in and cripple it so that we can have other follow on forces. So you see that in Ukraine playing out. You, Russia did not have a seed game. And uh, so it's kind of a stalemate in there. They did not establish air superiority. So that's our job.
0: Looking for a quick and easy way to grab your favorite black rifle coffee roast? Well, you can find America's Coffee on the shelves of your local Walmart. Stock up on your favorite roast as well as several Walmart exclusives you can't find anywhere else. No need to worry about waiting for shipping or having to drive all the way across town to find your BRCC coffee. Whether you're filling up for an early morning hunt or just need a pick-me-up during a busy day, stop by Walmart and grab a bag of Black Rifle Coffee today. Interesting. Wow. um, The F-35 is brand new, but is it... Has it been validated in conflict yet? Has it been any, I know it, I know one of them shot down the balloon, supposedly. (laughs) That was F-22. Oh, was it? F-22. Yeah. yeah. What's the difference between two and the 35?
1: Completely different fighters. So the F-22 was during a unique period of time. So the evolution of fighters in the 60s, it was all about going high and fast. In the 70s with John Boyd and and his team, it was about turning tightly and you saw the F-16 come out of that. Mm It was a pure dog fighter at the time. And then, Transitioning between that and what we have now, the F thirty five F thirty five is this flying sensor that has full situational of the battlefield. F twenty two was built in the nineties to bridge that gap. So it's uh-huh. both. It's a hedge. It can turn extremely tight. It's the best aerodynamic plane, so it can do all the stuff I'm talking about. The you know the flat spin kind of stuff and and uh, what you see in the air shows the cobra maneuver things extremely well. So it's it's highly maneuverable. It's also a flying sensor. But the Air Force is actually retiring those. Oh, really? So they only built 180, uh, less than 200 of them. So so they're really a victim of their small size.
0: Yeah, I remember them being like the hype. Like it mm-hmm. was like that was the future of, of aviation for the military. And then the F-35 came on board and it like crushed everything, right? Well,
1: it goes down to the program. So the F-22, they build 200. So I talked about how they're software dependent. So you can spend a couple hundred million dollars, on software and upgrade 4,000 F-35s because they're gonna build thousands Mm. of these things or you can upgrade 200. So they're a fantastic airframe, they're amazing, but they're just a victim of building less than 200. So the Air Force is looking to retire 30 this year and then phase them out over the next 10 years.
0: Mm. F-35s, as you made the transition, did you note, was it like noticeably different was it as fun as flying the F sixteen? Because I know there's a lot of analog processes that you go through, and it's, I imagine it's like flying an iPad or driving a Tesla mm-hmm. versus driving mm-hmm. a air cooled Porsche. You know, yeah, it's like very yeah. different, right? Yeah,
1: I say it's like uh, F sixteen is like a stripped down hot rod. It's like yeah. a nineteen nineties Corvette. Mm. So it's just visceral, manual. There's nothing like it. It's my favorite jet. I grew up wanting to to fly it, so it, it'll always be my first love. F thirty five is far more capable, but you're right, you're more of a systems operator. You're trying to see the battlefield. You're, you're kind of a mission commander up there, being able to direct different forces. So you're generally not getting into like dog fights and, and things like that. So it's mm. not as fun to fly, but as fighter pilots, we want to be as effective as possible. So it's not about fun. Like if, you know, if it's like a Sunday drive, like going mm. out on a Sunday drive, you want your Corvette. If you're going into the race, you, you want your high end race oh, car.
0: Yeah, good analogy. I when i look at the f-16 and then the f-35 i i always think about the tesla right the the saturation of technology and then what the red line looks like you know where guys are you know driving the things auto autonomically you know it's like automatic drive and then the next thing you know they're crashing into semi trucks because they lose situation awareness or because a glitch or a flaw is there a a catastrophe a pending catastrophe did you feel like you were losing situational awareness because it was so much or is it pretty dialed? I mean is it is it a user-friendly aircraft?
1: No, it's it's really dialed. So you're still manual, manually flying everything. So mm. that that sensor fusion is really what's helping you oh. you. So you're still manually flying it doing everything. So it's not like you're on autopilot like commercial mm. airline pilots. So so that's why a lot of people say, you know, is the fighter pilot going to be replaced? You have drones and AI coming out. It's not gonna be anytime soon. Like oh, we just don't have the AI to be able to to be able to adapt to combat the fog and friction of war. Mm-hmm. Teslas, you know, is, are a good example. So they can drive pretty well ninety nine percent of the time. One mm-hmm. percent of the time it tries to kill you. So yeah. so it's not there yet. Now imagine going against a thinking adversary. So I, I talk in that book about a, a SAM operator uh, during the Kosovo war, so Zoltan and Danny, a single SAM operator operating a 1950s SAM site, going up against US and the F-117. At the time, it was like our silver bullet. It was the most amazing technologically advanced aircraft. And he did a bun- bunch of innovative, creative things and ended up shooting down an F-117. So they they stole uh, Jaybird radar, so uh, old airplanes, and they used those as decoys Cause they had the same frequency wow. band as their sam site so they put that around the outer edges and so our horror missiles would would hit those things 1950s uh it was supposed to be a static sam site you couldn't move it he trained his men to be able to to pack it up and move it ever in every uh couple hours wow so he put it on tracks and during a, the 78 day campaign they put 50,000 miles on those trucks because they were wow. just all always moving throughout the country he did a bunch of other things. They limited their radiation time to two bouts of 20 seconds. So the HAR missile, it homes in on the the radiation from the SAM site. So he would turn it on for 20 seconds, see if he could shoot somebody down, turn it off, turn it back on for 20 seconds. After that, you're done. He'd have his team of like 200 people break down the SAM site and move somewhere else. Wow. So we shot hundreds of HAR missiles at this guy and never hit anything. He shot down our best aircraft, F-117 and a 16 And there's some other things we... Our uh, war planners had the F-117s flying in the same piece of sky from the same direction every time. But these are are crafty people out there trying to figure out ways to defeat our systems. And so you need a pilot on the battlefield making those decisions, at least for the next few decades.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I imagine with Russia and the Eastern European campaign potential, there's going to be some craziness. And air superiority is going to be if you're not gaining air superiority, we were going to know what it looks like in Ukraine. But I imagine that's going to be the next fight. I mean, I, I can't oh, imagine. Oh, for sure. A ton of boots on the ground.
1: Yeah, the, the last time a U.S. soldier was killed by enemy air fire, April 15th, 1950, 1953. Wow. So over Korea 70 war. years, because yeah. we always have air superiority. Wow. And that's that's tough, and we've kind of taken it for granted the last few decades. So uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, you know, it's it, it's... It's the most meaningful mission that I've ever done, close air support, being able to serve the troops on the ground uh, next to my son being born. That's that's the most meaningful thing. So it's amazing. That being said, as we pivot to, to China and some of these great power conflicts, the key use of, of at least like F-16s, F-35s is going to be going in, establishing air superiority, taking out those SAM sites, those enemy uh, critical nodes, because uh, that's going to save a ton of lives. So, so that's kind of what, what the, uh, the pivot is right now.
0: You, you, you transition and you kind of step off into the reserve component and your focus is education and some of the processes that you learn. I really enjoyed your book, um, The Art of Cleared Thinking. I actually saw a whole bunch of posts on it on social media and people like people were tagging me in the stuff because it talks about some of the things and framework at least uh, that we educate people on. And I was really interested in the idea of the ACE uh, acronym. Mm -hmm. Can you explain, like as a tangible takeaway for people who are listening to this, can you explain ACE and its its use in both your career field and somebody who's listening to this and how they can apply it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So break it down to ACE. So assess, choose, and execute. So you got to be able to assess the problem first, be able to understand it. Next, you have to choose the correct course of action. So I go in the book of how to be more creative, how to come up with more courses of action, mm-hmm. and then finding the expected value of it. So ultimately, when we're making a decision, that's all we're trying to do. What's the good thing that's going to happen? What's the probability of that happening? Minus what's the bad thing that's going to happen? The probability of that happening. And then lastly, being able to execute. So when we're flying missions, sometimes a 1,000 people have touched that mission. Everybody from spies on the ground to intel operators to tankers launching from other countries all to get us over the target on time and you can imagine the the jock joint operations center your sensors are up on the board everybody's looking at what you're doing so you need to be able to execute you're the last link in this chain and if you screw up that high value target may never come back again so there's a lot of pressure there so you have to be able to ultimately execute that's what we're doing out there so in the book i talk through. Uh, decision-making from those principles, being able to assess. I go into some more uh, detail with like power laws. Oftentimes as humans, we're wired to think linearly. So you walk 30 steps, you're 30 steps away. But most relationships in the world are, are non-linear. They adhere to these power laws. So you really want to focus on those things that have an outsized effect. Mm. So as a fighter pilot, for instance, if we have to eject, there's a lot of steps in the checklist that we have to do. Ultimately, the most important thing is just to slow down because the force on our bodies is a function of the speed we're flying, and it doesn't scale linearly. So if you are flying uh, twice as fast, there's four times the force on your body. So mm-hmm. at Mach 1.6, it's 300 times the force of going 75 miles an hour. So it'll rip your body apart. So the number one thing you can do is just slow down. Mm-hmm. So that's so that those are part, part of the principles that I talk about in the book of how to assess the problem and really focus on the most important thing. Another aspect is thinking in terms of, urgency versus importance. So I I go into a book about Eisenhower's decision during D-Day to delay D-Day for a day, Mm -hmm. and then execute even though he had a really narrow window with the weather. And so he was really a master at being able to assess what was important versus urgent. And I talked to some studies that have shown if you can just write down and put your tasks into, you can come up with four quadrants versus uh, 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 comparing urgency versus importance and be able to uh, increase your ability to prioritize by 60%. So just that one tool alone. So so there's a lot of little tools and, and tricks in there and I w- wanted to write it in a suspenseful way. Mm-hmm. I think as humans, we learn from storytelling. If all it took were information, we'd all have six packs and be billionaires. Mm-hmm. But really as humans, we learn from storytelling. It goes mm-hmm. back thousands of years. So I wanted to tell things from a, a storytelling perspective you know, we we can learn from other people. You don't always have to touch the hot stove yourself. You can learn from these stories, and I they're not just my flying stories. I talk through stories from history, like Eisenhower's uh, story. I talk about different business stories, and then some from my time flying. So I really wanted to make it exciting so that people would would get into it, and then they'll take away lessons learned.
0: Yeah, it's really well written. I like the fact that you you're 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 talking about the the side components of the conversation through this testing of the F-16 and this speed test that you're doing, I thought that was really cool. And the fascinating thing was hearing you through your O2 mask. I assume you were in your F-35 when you were uh, communicating or were you just, how did you do the audible where you're doing the the introduction and you're under O2?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you caught that. Like that's, uh, apparently that's the first time in history that anybody's recorded an audible while flying. That's so so it, cool. it wasn't an F35. So we I can't do that cuz the Air Force doesn't want to use their assets. <laughs> Plus it's a little pricey. Uh Mike, it's it's about $50,000, 35 to $50,000 an hour to fly the F35. Oh my gosh. I don't have that budget. I know you guys <laughs> probably do here, but uh we were flying in a S211 Marchetti, like a yeah. um it's this Italian jet for that. Yeah. But yeah, it was cool to I mean it was really tough with the coordination and to nail it and 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 do all that stuff, but uh yeah, it was fun to be able to read parts of it, so the intros to each chapter I read while flying, and then I go so into cool. a, a high-quality booth to to record the rest.
0: Yeah, it's really good. I I, I noticed that um, in the book you talk about um, an instance where you were one of the first, if not the first and last, pilot to fly in two platforms in one combat operation day, like mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a period of 24 hours. To talk through that, because that's fascinating to me. Yeah, so
1: that that was going to be my— I've never heard th- that the before. The third thing that I talked about for, like, when I felt like I had done something, um, you know, kind of done something that I had wanted to do and really employed the F-16. So first was strafing. Second was dropping a 2,000-pound bo- bomb in a troops-in-contact situation. Oh, wow.
0: That's rare. Yeah,
1: that was— uh, you know, and it was really well inside the uh, the danger close numbers. So yeah. um, that what, was one. 2,000 pounder. And then the third was taking two jets into combat on the same day, two different types. So we had F-16 uh, Block 40s from Aviano, Italy that were swapping. We call it ripping out. So they were swapping out with us while our jets were being uh, uh, geared up to go back home, travel pods, things like that. And so we were flying their jets, different software load, F-16 oh, wow. Block 40s and got into a troops in contact situation, dropped all my ordnance in about 10 minutes. Wow. And I was fragged to be on there for a four hour vol. And so they didn't have any other pilots to fly because the next ones weren't showing up for another four or five hours. So I got on SATCOM and they said, fly home as fast as you can. We'll get one of your block 50s that are being changed up to uh, to go back home. We'll swap it out, put ordnance on so that you can go back into combat. So the maintainers, I mean, I have to give a big shout out to them. like. This should normally take like 8 hours, but they were able to uh, to, you know, bust their ass and be able to to change the jet. I flew back max afterburner, got out of my jet, jumped in the F-16 Block 50, took that back into combat and was able to employ the ordnance on there and it was it was a bad troops in contact situation, but fortunately um, brought everybody back back, so
0: That's awesome, um, man. That that's that's incredible. I was as you were telling that story about like the switchover, I was thinking about the maintainers. I was like, "Man, that had to have been a logistical nightmare to get everything set up and established. But it also is like, man, fighter pilots in my mind, growing up, I mean, I didn't want to be, I wanted to be a Green Beret. That's all I wanted to be. But I, have, I had a lot of respect for fighter pilots and that whole like top gun mindset mentality um, and seeing how, I mean, you guys are like very unique in your skill sets. I mean, you're surgeons on the battlefield, right? and not everybody could do that. It's a very difficult path to get there. I'm curious, you're transitioning now, you wrote a book. What was the task and objective for you to personally write a book and not make it a full, I would say active career? You're transitioning now, mm. you're doing different things. What What's the change in focus?
1: So that really came back from, uh, from, from that period in Afghanistan. So I was transitioning to the F-35. I had a couple months where uh, I had some downtime. So I was kind of decompressing. We had a lot of different things happen out there. And so I was just writing down some of the stories. And I wanted to, I, I wasn't thinking about writing a book at all. But I, I was like, you know, what does it take to write a book? And you really need an audience to do that. So that coincided with another thing. So Luke Air Force Base at the time wanted a speaker on Memorial Day to talk about combat and uh, and loss. And so I gave a speech and there was a teacher in the crowd who said, my students need to hear this. They don't really know anything about the military. Um, they don't have any family members in the military. Can you come speak in my schools? So I started doing that. Out of that, I started a, a podcast, cause I was like, there's gotta be a digital way to get this out there. Then start a YouTube channel. And then after that, I, I revisited some of the writing. It was like, maybe I can actually write a book. And so started writing a book and I didn't really wanna make it about myself. I wanted to find a way. We have a lot of siloed knowledge in the fighter pilot world, a lot of debriefing tips and techniques. I think we've really been on the leading edge of decision-making science since the 1950s when John Boyd came up with the OODA loop, but it hasn't really gotten out there. Um, Not because it's classified, just because we're really busy focusing on the next war, the Mm -hmm. next battle. So I kind of decided that I would, uh, I would, leave active duty, transition to the reserves, I'd still get a chance to fly the F-35 a couple times a month, but then this would be my focus. I I didn't want to go to the airlines. I wanted to kind of burn that bridge and really focus on finding a way to communicate with the world and finding a way to pass these lessons learned off through through YouTube, through writing the book. And it came out last week, seems to be uh, well-received. So Mm it's a uh, bestseller for Barnes & Noble, uh, number one bestseller on Amazon. So it seems like, the word's getting out there, and I'm just happy to to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, it's really cool, man. I, I there's a there's not a lot of your guys, your community doing this. We we interviewed recently. Her call sign's Casey, or um, um, the A10 pilot, mm-hmm. uh, retired colonel Campbell, right? Campbell, yeah. Um, she just retired out of the Air Force Academy, and you know she has profound stories. But the the Baghdad service to air missile strike on her A10 is just a highlight. In a specific part of her journey, the overall story itself is so impactful, and I think a lot of uh, people, especially in uniform, forget like it's not just the gunfight, it's not just the battle, it's not just the valorous award. It's like you have a lot of valuable institutional knowledge that will help civilians in their transition and then becoming better people and decision making. Uh, I, I think it's really cool, and the, the the art of clear thinking is something that's not talked about enough. It's like situational awareness, like. Where do you go for how to learn situation awareness besides philosophically talking about it, you know? And what I like about your book is there's very tangible tools and techniques that you can apply to your everyday life, it's really cool.
1: Yeah, I wanted to make it like a toolbox that people could use and it'll be, you know, I think ultimately what a book should do, it should entertain you and you should get something out of it. It should spark some new ideas in your life. So that's what I wanted to do with this book. And I mean, to your point, the special forces community has done a phenomenal job of being able to pass along lessons learned. You guys, you guys, the last 20 years have, have done, uh, you know, far more than, than us in, in mm. Afghanistan, Iraq, you guys have been putting yourself at risk. And so you guys have a lot of lessons learned as well. And I think you guys have done a great job you with your channel, with your new book coming out, um, Navy SEALs out there. I think they've done a great job of getting the word out and passing along these lessons learned to, to not just military members, doctors, lawyers, teachers, students, parents even. I think everybody can learn a lot of these tools and techniques, so hats off to you guys.
0: I appreciate it. Yeah, you as well. I'm, I'm excited to even be on the podcast with you because I'm, I'm excited to see your journey and where this goes. Um, closing it out, where can people find a lot of the things that you're doing? We'll hyperlink a lot of the stuff down below, but where, where what are you mainly doing now? Are you doing speaking engagements? Or are people able to contact you? What, what is the uh, the way that people can reach out?
1: Uh, right now, doing YouTube videos. So actually, I think uh, Andy Stump and I are gonna go and do some dog fighting. So actually, if you wanna come to Vegas and do this, <laughs> they're gonna be an extra 300s. Maybe we can make like a, a ladder and have like a competition of yeah. different different personalities out there. <laughs> so making YouTube videos, um, just spending some time. I, I mean, I spent six years on this book. I wrote every word in it 500 days in a row, I, I oh. wrote it. Um, so I, 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 mean, it was, a, it was brutal going through it. So I'm just taking some time to kind of assess, make some of these videos. So I think we're going to do that in like August, September. So I'll send awesome. an invite for that, but social media, uh, hazard Lee with an S H A S A R D Lee L E E. Um, you can find me on YouTube, on Instagram, all those platforms.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I'm interested to check out your channel. Uh, we'll make sure we we'll cost link everything down below. Um, any closing thoughts as we close this podcast though?
1: No, it's, it's great to be out here, to finally you know meet you in person, and this has been great.
0: Awesome, I appreciate you guys. Pick up this book. It's all the links down below for Hazard Stuff, but also this book are down below. Uh, recommended read, 100%. I, I would put it in my top 10 of all books that focus on the subject matter, especially this tangible tools that you can get and apply to your life. A lot of people don't talk about this enough, and I think it's a, a well-written and audible version of the book. Make sure you check it out, and uh, thanks for joining the Black Rifle Coffee podcast. Until next time, peace out. Joining the Black Rifle Coffee Club is like setting your coffee delivery to autopilot. As a club member, you get your favorite premium BRCC roast delivered fresh to your doorstep. All you have to do is pick your coffee, select the amount you want, then set the delivery schedule, and you're done. Easy as that. Not only will you get to knock coffee off your grocery list for good, but you also save cash over time since members get free shipping on deliveries. Club members also get exclusive discounts with partners like Philcraft Survival, Cryptek, Sig Sour, and more. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club today. Start saving and enjoy the peace of mind that your coffee has been taken care of.
1: That concludes today's training. Any questions? <laughs> Woo! Drum kitties, boy!